We're going to be here. We're in Luke chapter 8. This is a fun part of the chapter, Luke chapter 8. So go ahead and find your way to Luke chapter 8, verse 25, and go and stand with me, and I'll read the text, and then we'll jump into the sermon. Luke chapter 8, or Acts chapter 8. Oh, you guys, listen to you just laughing, laughing, laughing. Look at that. You're like cackle, cackle. He said, Luke, but it's written by Luke. So who's the, yeah, I was right. We know it's Luke chapter 2, part 2. Uh, Acts The book of Luke's writing, all right, chapter 8, starting with verse 25. This is the reading of God's word from the book of Acts. All right. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I asked, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this text, there's many, many things we could focus on, but help us to understand Luke's intended purpose, ultimately your intended purpose, God. I pray that we would see, as we look at this passage, your emphasis and your contrast. I pray, Father, for those that that don't know you today, that they would understand what true faith looks like, that they would receive it. They would understand what you've done to bring them here, that they would feel the force of your grace. I pray for those of us who know and and have put our faith in you that we would understand that you are still working, and in the same grace that brought us to know you is still working to bring others, that we would be confident. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so let's introduce this a little bit. So I want to turn to a familiar passage for a minute. So Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Go ahead and go flip there real quick. So Psalm 139. And the reason I like this passage, the reason everyone likes this passage is it's about us. It's like, we're so great, right? That's what it seems like. But that's actually kind of what I want to focus on in a minute. One of the challenges, I believe, of anybody of a robust Christian faith that, you know, understands depravity, understands, you know, glory, grace, depravity, all the doctrines of grace, is that sometimes we minimize and misunderstand the value that God places upon us. Now, God did not send his son to take our place because we were so intrinsically valuable. However, God himself truly does love us. 
And this is one thing that I, unfortunately, you're listening to some of the music coming in today um, on the Christian radio station. You know, some of the, so we've, we've, we've reinforced it into a sentimentality, not understanding the sheer scariness and the sheer force of this love. And so Psalm 139 kind of encapsulates a little bit if, if we can read it without the sentimentality and with an eye and a mind on some theology. So what do we mean by that? Psalm 139, notice what it says about God and his thoughts towards us. It says, about God, says, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. In the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Look at verse 15 and 16. This is not speaking of the womb. Verses 15 and 16, verses 13 and 14 certainly are speaking of the womb, but verses 15 and 16 are speaking about God's thoughts about you when he said, let there be light. That's what this is speaking about. This is about God's thoughts about you as he, as the decree of God decided to create everything, that you were in his mind before you existed. Again, it mentions that before the days were formed for me. I mean, this is the language of the Bible. So not only do we believe that there is a linear God of history, right? So there's a purpose in history we see, but also that God personally is invested in you particularly. And we know that as a believer in Jesus Christ, you can look back and see this. And then knowing that, just the thought of this, this picture of God's knowledge about you, his plan from you before he said, let there be light. That's what Psalm 139 is speaking of. He then says this in verse 17, and what, what the psalmist is speaking about right now is something that I want you to understand. He's speaking here about the omniscience of God, that you are loved by an omniscient God. When you watch Bruce Almighty and people write in the prayers and he gets overwhelmed because he can't answer them all, so he just says yes to all of them. And then he goes outside and people are driving Ferraris and you know, doing crazy things. Um, listen to this. This is what it says. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, how vast is the sum of them. When he says this, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God, he's not saying how precious to me are the fact that you have thoughts. That's not what he's saying. It's basically how precious to me are your thoughts about me. How precious to me to know God, the creator of everything, the, the you know, omniscient one that you think about me, right? How vast is the sum of what? Of your thoughts towards me. If I, could, if I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Now, this idea, this, this, guy, this idea about God's love for you, his thoughts toward you are truly beyond imagining, right? He, he, and he has the bandwidth. When, we, when a, a young person meets someone and they fall in love, we, sometimes the people around those people can always be like, uh, right? Because that person is overwhelmed by this person and it kind of absu- you know, takes all the, the, the oxygen away from their normal life, right? And so other people in their life tend to get bitter because they say, oh, those people are in love and they do it. And so we tend to think, well, if God's thoughts are towards you all the time, he wouldn't have thoughts towards everybody, but he's omniscient. He can spend an eternity thinking about just you and know every hair on just your head, whether you have it or you don't. He can know all of that and still have the, all the bandwidth because uh, he's eternal to have all the bandwidth in the world. He's not lessened in any way in his omniscience, in his eternality. In other words, God's thoughts toward you, his love towards you is overwhelming. You are loved beyond imagining by an omniscient God. These are huge concepts. He truly actually cares about the stupid things in your life. Really, he does. 
He knows everything. His thoughts toward you are more than every grain of sand. If you could sum it up in the most just almost insultingly basic way, you could just say it like this, you matter to God. Let's take a quick look at the video. Now, I love that video, and I love where we're going in this passage. It's one of my favorite passages. I keep saying that every time I get to a sermon because it becomes my new favorite. But you have to understand, one of the challenges when we preach through the Bible, when you go through the Bible, is we divide it up into sections, and each section is divorced from its larger context. And I, it's, it's, a, it's normal we would do that, right? Because you'd see a section, you say, okay, this is about this, and then the author moves on to this, and not realize that there's an, a grand narrative, a tapestry that blends it all together. And the question we have to begin with our passage, because we're going to get into a story about an Ethiopian eunuch on, on the road in, to Gaza, where right now we see like violence, terrorism, and war breaking out in that very region, we're going to learn about an Ethiopian from uh, basically Sudan, is what that means, uh, coming and hearing the gospel and, and being saved and what that looks like and why that's so significant. But it's not just a random story. That's, I guess, the point I'm trying to make. It's meant to be set in contrast to another story, one we talked about last week. So go back to chapter 8 of the book of Acts and look at verse 4. This is last week's message. Let's just take a quick peek at that so we can understand the contrast that Luke who wrote Acts, is drawing. And so if you look at chapter 8, verse 4, it says this, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is the story of the gospel going from Jerusalem into Samaria, and this is the, the, the picture of what that looks like. And remember, the Samaritans were the half-breed Jews. They were the, the essentially Gentiles, um, and, but they were the ones, the Jews did not like them, they were against them, and now we see the gospel going to them. And so this is an exciting moment. It was right after the persecution that happened that spread them abroad. So God is fully in charge of this spread of the gospel. That's what we're seeing. It is the acts of the Holy Spirit. So those who were scattered abroad went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him. And they saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So that's great. So Luke moves from the summary now to a specific instance of a guy named Simon. He says, but there's a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. Simon was essentially uh, a guy who claimed to be, he was a, a proto-Gnostic, if you will. This is a guy that believed in secret knowledge, and he was essentially um, a god incarnate in, in, in many ways. We talked about this last week. And so everyone paid attention to him because for a long time he'd amazed them with his magic. Again, this wasn't like illusions and tricks, but a satanic type thing. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. To remind you again what's happening in the book of Acts, this is a transitional book, and the picture of the Holy Spirit, why did God delay to send the Spirit? And it was so that the people of Jerusalem would understand that the people of Samaria, they were part of the same body. And this was kind of a, a, a revelatory kind of experience. But regardless... He says, um, when Simon, verse 18, saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, this is the key part of the whole contrast. He saw that the Holy Spirit, who is the third member of the Godhead, the, you know, the Holy Spirit himself, was coming upon people by the laying on of hands and associated this with control and magic. Essentially, he saw a new magic trick. 
right? That's like the picture here. And he says, well, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit because he wanted to use money. And so Peter says, may your silver perish with you, literally, literally to hell with you and your money because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Your heart's not right with before God. Repent. And it describes Simon says, pray for me and so on and so forth. Now, that's the picture. The picture is a contrast here between uh, what Luke is drawing here is a contrast between a man who has a profession of faith, but that's not real faith. He's a false convert with the picture of this Ethiopian eunuch who we're going to see has a true faith. But I made a comment last week that is really going to drive where we are today. I said, and I used John to show it, that true God-given faith, like true faith, saving faith is a God-wrought faith. It is a God-given faith. And this is something that where Simon was never really a believer, even though it said at first he was, the similar thing happened all through the, the gospel of John. Simon wanted and, and stayed the same and he wanted to control the spirit. And the big contrast comes into who's really in charge when it comes to salvation and the spirit. If this is the book of Acts, we see Philip looking, not Philip, uh, Simon in this case, thinking that the Holy Spirit was a force to be controlled, a force to be wielded and controlled, and he wanted it. He wanted the magic. He wanted the control. He wanted this. Now, in contrast to this, you see in our passage the story of that same Holy Spirit who will not be controlled and will not be bought, blowing where he wishes, going where he wishes, and accomplishing what he wishes, how he wishes, and in the way he wishes to do it. And we see salvation happen to an Ethiopian eunuch on the road to Gaza. And so that's the contrast that we see here. This is, in all this thing, there's a lesson, if we pay attention, about the Holy Spirit and ultimately about grace. Grace is the most scandalous concept in the Bible, and it remains scandalous only when you look at it. You need to understand it truly. It is not something we just take for granted, and this passage will reveal it to us. Interpretively, we'll get to the end of the sermon, and I'll explain where I'm coming from with all of this, and you'll, it should hopefully make sense, but bear with me. Let's look at the beginning part. As we look at this first beginning part, I'm starting with verse 25, not 26. Many of your you know, Bibles will have that in a previous paragraph. Remember the paragraphs rather later, what have you. Verse 25, I think, goes with the section because of the contrast. What do I mean by that? Verse 25 says this, now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now, this is the picture of Philip after, you know, going forward and signing all those guys together in a group, going back, heading back to Jerusalem, okay? And you essentially have a revival. You have a, 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 it's not even a revival. It's a revival because there's not a re. It's just people are coming to Christ, right? People are, are hearing the gospel. They're responding to the gospel. This is a rich ministry, right? A very rich ministry. And so what are they doing? They're going back to base because that's what we do, right? We have an idea how it should go. So they're going to go back to base, you know, back to the hotel, right? Da, 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 da. That's in my head, sorry. Uh, so they're going back to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So that you see a picture of fruitfulness, now contrast this with what happens in verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise, go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. And then just in case you don't understand like we don't, we're told this is a desert place. Well, this is a weird command. First of all, this is an obvious thing. So when the Holy Spirit, when the angel comes and speaks, it's obvious. This isn't just like a rumbling in his belly that he's not sure about. This is a direct command to go. And so he goes. This isn't like, I wonder if God kind of told me because I had a feeling. No, he's like, go down to the south to the road towards Gaza. Now, this isn't, this is the road going toward Gaza. Now, it's interesting. Here we are in a sermon talking about Gaza, and we're watching the news all about the Gaza Strip right now and the turmoil that's happening there. And it's just a fascinating reality that that part of the world is still in the news. And here it is there too. Gaza at this point was a desert place. 
This was a desert place. This wasn't a thriving uh, of anything. Uh, it was a desert place, and it's not thriving now either, nor will it be, I'm sure. But uh, it, is, it is a desert place. And this is a key thing. If you're Philip, that's a weird thing for an angel of the Lord to tell you. And Luke is making us, again, in the painting that is Scripture, there's a, a jarring line. You're like, well, what's that all about? Well, what's that? Like, that's crazy. Why would we go there? Like, you're not supposed to read this like, oh, yeah, then he goes to a desert place. Like, that doesn't make sense. You're like, why would he do that? That's weird. You're supposed to be like, hmm, something odd is happening here. That's an odd command. And it's also odd right after the Holy Spirit was trying to be controlled by Simon. We're saying, okay, let's, what's up over here? And so he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He'd come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, let's take this apart a minute. This an Ethiopian, this is not modern-day Ethiopia. This was more Kush, like basically like Sudan area of, of, uh, of uh, Africa. This is like Sudan. And uh, this was a, a black man who's coming from basically Sudan, Kush area. Um, his, the word Candace is not uh, the, her name. This is a, unfortunate that it's come out like this. is actually Kandake. It's a, the name of the queen mother of the, those folks. So he was a representative, a very high official. But here's what's important about this figure here. He, is, he looks exotic and he's from as basically far away as you can get in the ancient world of the known world. He's as far in the most exotic reaches of foreign that you get to at that point. When you look at the, the all the way up to Cush kind of thing, that's kind of the picture. He's beyond the, the known world. This, this guy is a guy on the road to God's in a desert place randomly who is uh, an official. Now, he's also a eunuch. Now, eunuchs are interesting people. They were people often that, were, that had political power, at least in that kingdom. And as, as, as young boys, they're castrated. Um, if you don't know what that is, just ask your parents, kids. Uh, being castrated is not fun. It's not a good thing. But the purpose of that usually was so that that person can be in court life and you never have to worry about them spreading their seed in the court life. You know, that they're never going to have like a, a, you know, a bastard child with a, a queen or something like that. This, is, this makes this person safe. And often it was eunuchs that would run you know, princely harems and things like that. It's kind of crazy. So this guy worked for this queen mother, okay, not named Candace. We don't know her name, but it's Kandake, it's the queen mother, and he's a eunuch. So he uh, has no ability to have children or anything else. But there's, it's also significant to understand who he is, because if you understand in Deuteronomy 23, and I don't need you to go there now, I just want to reference it for a minute. Deuteronomy 23 reminds us that in the holy city, in the temple, no person that has had, has been castrated, is allowed to come in. Now, we see through Leviticus and other places that we're, we're told often that if you have a blemish or you have a, a disfigurement, you can't come before God in the Holy of Holies. And then later in uh, Deuteronomy, we're told just overtly that if, you've, if you're a eunuch, essentially, you cannot come in. And if you want to understand where that comes from, go back to Leviticus. I talked all about it. But essentially, this was a picture of th this guy having no access to the things of, of God in this way, okay? And it's interesting because we see that he's a, uh, basically a proselyte despite all of this. It says he'd come to Jerusalem to worship. Now, there's a couple of things I want to point out. There, what, what Luke is doing for us here is what we've seen through the gospel, if you're paying attention through all the gospels. What does this man have in common with what we see in the gospels with, with, it, with the leper, with the deaf, with the blind, with the dead, with children? In each case, this man represents what we see all through the Gospels as a person with inability, someone who is far from access to God. This is a person, and why is this so important for us to understand, right? Why is it so important for us to understand that this person is far from God? Why is it emphasized in this way? We just came from a passage where Simon was like, I mean, he'd, he, everyone would be like, this guy's the closest. He's just almost there, right? He's the guy that's great. 
And you contrast with this man who can't even go into the temple. He would have stayed out in the outer court of the Gentiles, likely. And so we read, going on, now, going on just so we don't miss this, he says, um, uh, he was in charge of all their treasure, and he came to Jerusalem to worship, all right? And, uh, and the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. Now, understand this picture here. He says, go over and join this chariot. That's the guy. Here he is. He's sit- seated in the chariot. What's he doing in verse 28? He's seated in his chariot, and he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, at this time, the, 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 he wouldn't have had a book. He wouldn't have be, he's not sitting in his chariot. First of all, the chariot was being pulled by like an oxen, not horses, so it's moving chill. He's just like chilling along. He's not driving the chariot in one hand holding a book, right? He's got a servant. He's got a very wealthy guy, and he's got someone driving the chariot. He's in the back of the chariot lounging out probably with like a tarp type thing over him, and he doesn't have a book in his hand. He has a scroll. He would have, in this case, it'd be like a 29-foot scroll, and it happens to be opened up to Isaiah. We're going to see it happening to be opened up to Isaiah 53 of all places. And so just kind of stop for a second and set the, the, the table for a moment. You have this experience of Simon the magician trying to buy the Holy Spirit, and all of a sudden you have a separate picture of this man going out, go to a desert place. Here's a random guy from a foreign country, as far foreign as you can imagine, who happens to be in a chariot reading out loud from the book of Isaiah, the very place where you'd want to. I mean, like, and he's like, go to that person. What's going on? <laughs> I mean, well, first of all, I want to bring this up. Go to 1 Corinthians. I, I referenced this last week. I'm going to reference it again and again. This is huge. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Why is it so important we see what's happening in this way? Why is it important, in other words, that we recognize that this man is a eunuch and an Ethiopian, right? Why is it important here? It's because we're recognizing that this guy didn't, he, he, he didn't like earn his way to God, right? We see that this guy seemingly as far from God, and yet in our passage, we're seeing God go out of his way to seek him out. Is that fair? I mean, God finds this guy and sends someone to him, right? That's the, the picture here. Um, if you look at the first Corinthians, it says, where is the one who's wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the Father, what we preach to those who believe. That's basically Simon, right? Simon's like, I've got the wisdom of God called great. And he's like, no, 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 that's not it. You need to believe this is different. The Jews demand sign, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Again, this is a contrast to Simon who called himself and people called him the power of God. We're saying, no, no, Christ is the power of God. For the foolishness of God is wise than the men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Well, this is important to us, but then he goes on. <coughs> For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. What he's trying to say here is that you're, God didn't save you because he's like, oh man, you're, you're awesome. In fact, one of, the things, one of the things I think that Luke doesn't do in this passage that I think is really helpful is he doesn't go on and tell us that this Ethiopian comes to know the Lord and then goes back to Sudan and then starts a big kingdom because that would almost make it look like God's being super strategic right? And I think Luke's emphasis is, well, we might infer some of that, but Luke doesn't tell us that. Luke just emphasizes that this man comes to know the Lord. And in the same way, you think of us. Not many of us were wise or according to worldly standards, powerful or noble birth. God didn't come to us that way. God chose, this is the key, what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose, that's the third time he says, what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. So why did God choose, choose, choose? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the story in our passage. Simon, who wanted to boast and have power versus this eunuch. Who gets to boast in, the, in God? 
Simon wanted to boast in himself using God. The Ethiopian eunuch can't, is like, I was just going along. Like, and out of nowhere, this guy appears in the desert of all places, happening to know what I'm reading. That's the story of salvation for every single one of us. None of us were like, oh, I was basically there already. And then he just had to push me a little bit further, right? And because of him, you're in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, redemption. So that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. What does it mean to boast in the Lord? Well, let me put this another way. We're meant to see our inability. We're meant to see our inability prior to salvation. It's important. Why is it important? Why is it important we recognize that we see our inability? In, in other words, you could almost say, who's this guy, uh, the, the Ethiopian eunuch? Who's this guy? We're like, well, what, what about the, the guy in the cave in Africa? We're like, here's a guy in a chariot in a desert place from Africa. What happened to him? Like, God sent someone to him, right? And we see him come to know the Lord. But like, why is it important we recognize that we have such inability? Why is that so important? I would argue so that we can see grace. Go to Luke 15. Luke 15. I, I've, I've covered this, obviously. We came after, out from Luke recently, but I want to make sure we don't miss something here. What we're going to point out, there's three parables. The first is the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and then the prodigal son. And in each parable that Jesus gives, we're given a story, right? So Jesus first talks about the lost sheep, and he talks about... Um, Look at verse 4. What man of you having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it. And, they tell, and he brings everyone together and basically throws a party and says, rejoice with me. You know what they probably eat at a party? Sheep. Just kidding, but yes. <laughs> I found him. Let's eat. Um, <laughs> but here's the part of the story that's interesting. The comment that Jesus makes in the parable, he's talking to the Pharisees here, and, and it's important we see, this is what Luke's doing in our passage. He says, which one of you wouldn't leave 99 to go save the one? And we're like, uh, no one? Maybe if you have other people helping you out, you might leave. But the very idea that you leave 99 to save one is absurd. It looks silly and crazy. It doesn't make sense. If you're one of the 99, you're like, what, what kind of weird shepherd do we have? Don't we matter? We're all here. Does that make sense? So the, to leave the 99 to save the one looks silly if, if you think you're the 99. It doesn't look right. That's, so Jesus is emphasizing something here. He's emphasizing how crazy it looks you'd leave the 99 for one. How about the next woman? This one's even, this one's even sillier. Here's what woman, if she, has, if she loses a coin, doesn't light a lamp, sweep the house, seek diligently, she finds it. And when she finds it, she says, rejoice with me and throws a big party, which costs, by the way, frankly, quite a bit more than a coin. So imagine me losing a quarter or let's say, okay, let's say I lose a $100 bill. And I'm like, I lost a $100 bill. It's so hard. And I go on Facebook. Does anyone want to see my $100 bill? No one's like, no one finds it. I'm like, I found it. Eureka. And then I throw a party. And by the way, just the gas to come to the party is more than a hundred bucks, right? Like, and I said, let's all come to the party. And you show up at the party. How many of you think that's an awesome party? I'm like, yeah, I got my hundred dollars back. No one's going to that party. Like, this is awesome. No one's like, I can't wait to go to that party of that person that lost their coin and found it. That looks absurd. That's stupid. Like, what do you, you know, Right? And that's exactly the point because when we get to the next one about the prodigal son, yes, we emphasize that the prodigal son goes astray and the father runs to greet him. Yes, that's the true thing. But it's the other brother that's key because the other brother looks at him like, what an idiot, dad. He just took advantage of you. He's blown all your resources and you're going to go give him the best ring, give him all the best stuff. Why would you do that? In other words, that's so silly. And that's the point. Grace, the grace that goes to this eunuch that leaves the, the, that leaves the fruitful ministry 
of everyone else and goes to a desert place to save one guy. Looked really silly. Until you realize that you are that one sheep, you are that one coin, you are that one son. All of a sudden, grace looks pretty good. When you're that one lost sheep and you see that shepherd coming through the brambles to get you, you're like, I can't believe he came for me. All of a sudden, you're like, that looks amazing. If you're that one lost coin and someone cares about you that much, and if you're that lost son in the same way, that's grace. Grace only looks good when you're getting it. But from the outside, it always looks silly. It looks almost offensive. And that's how our passage is meant to look a little bit. Uh, the, you, know, you leave this crowd of people to go this random dude in the middle of nowhere. Look at what God's emphasis is here. But here's the thing. We're meant to see that, but here's the biggest part about our passage today. We're meant to see more than that. We're meant to see more than what I just said. What do I mean? Go to John chapter three. Because here is the interpretive key to our passage, I believe. Now, you might disagree with me, but everyone's allowed to be wrong. You can still be a Christian. But John 3, 1 to 8, Jesus speaks to Nicodemus. And he's speaking in, in, in so many ways. Imagine Nicodemus is a lot like Simon the magician. Both people thought that they could merit salvation. Both people thought they could control the, the, the you know, so there's a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, John 3, 1. A ruler of the Jews, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Nicodemus is a ruler of the Jews. He's someone who's in charge of the meritorious approach to God, in other words, of the people that could earn their way to God. That's, that's who Nicodemus is. And he, so he goes to Jesus by night. Similar, Simon goes, you know, to Philip. So here's, and Jesus says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, this guy says to him, talks about the kingdom. He goes, what are you talking about? You, you can't even see the kingdom unless you're born again. This is insulting, what Jesus just said. He's like, why are you talking about the kingdom? You can't even see it unless you're born again. And then Nicodemus's response is sort of a mixture. It's really hard to tell tone from reading, but there's a bit of... Um, it almost seems like a bit of mockery here, but also um, just a, a bit of, you'll understand where you see where he comes from. He says, you have to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can I buy the Holy Spirit with money? How do I get it? How do I get be born again? Can I crawl back into my mother's womb? Can I do, and the whole point is, what'd you do to get born the first time? Nothing. It has happened to you. But Nicodemus, who's part of the people that like, wants to earn it, wants to know, what can I do to achieve this thing? This is the shock of it all. And Jesus is like, you can't do anything. He goes on, he says, how can a man be born? Is it? Okay, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one's born of water and the spirit, that means water born physically, and of the spirit born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And then he tells us, just so you, in case you missed what he meant, he says, that which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. In other words, being born the first time is just like being born again. It happens to you. And he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. In, in other words, as Jesus speaking, Nicodemus has the resting brat face. He's like, and Jesus is like, don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. And then he says, our passage is outline, I believe. He says, the wind blows where it wishes. The wind blows where it wishes, upon whom it wishes, right? And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Let me break this down for you. In our passage, Simon, like Nicodemus, wanted to control grace and earn it. But we're shown that it blows where it wishes, out of nowhere to a desert highway, upon whom it wishes, to a foreign eunuch. Now, you can hear its sound. You could see its effect. 
You could see his work, his timing, his providence down to the very last detail, which we're going to get to. But you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. In fact, Philip is, is carried away. Now, everyone wonders, was this a miracle of the Holy Spirit to make Philip fly there? In other words, was Philip like, right? Is that the picture? Then he flies away. I'd be like, how do I have this? Like the emphasis that Luke's drawing, remember the, what Luke wants us to see is from the eunuch's perspective of him just appearing. So whether he flew or he ran or whether he snuck behind bushes and got there, however he did it, the, the, the sensation from the eunuch's perspective is out of nowhere, this guy just pops up. And as soon as it's done, he's gone. The wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it's come from, where it's going. Why is that important? Because why is it so important we understand that? Verse eight, so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. This is about you, Christian. Let me say this again. It blows where it wishes. Like I said, out of nowhere on a desert highway to whom it wishes, to a foreign eunuch, you hear its sound. I told you already, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. It leaves just as suddenly. So it is with everyone who is born again. So it is with everyone who has a God-wrought faith. So it is with you. Can you, Christian, see the force of grace in your life? What brought you to Christ? Was it your intelligence? We, already, we, we just got rid of it. It wasn't because you're more humble. It wasn't because you're more awesome. How many of you, don't raise your hand, but how many of you sat in a room with other people, sat next to your friends, and you received Christ? You put your faith in Christ, but they didn't. Is it because you're more humble than them? The Bible says, no, you can't say that. At some point, there's a reality that God had been working to orchestrate your salvation. And you say, why me and not, why not someone else? And he's like, yep, that's true. The wind blows where it wishes, where it wishes. Remember that sounds a lot like God chose, God chose, God chose. That's the scandal. That's the scandal. If you're sitting here right now as a Christian, God did something to you and for you and you're here because of it. And that is the force of his amazing, uncontrolled grace. It is his choice. He did that. Can you see it? That's why you're here. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, maybe he's doing something right now. Can you see it in your life? And then look at the next section. Let's, let's emphasize it. Blowing upon you. Look at what the, the eunuch's experience would have been. So we see the story and he goes and we're there. Look at verse 30. He happens to, he goes over and joins the chariot. So Philip ran up to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So when they read back then, they'd read out loud. So there's this guy reading this prophet in a chariot. Just think of the timing again. He happens to be reading from Isaiah the prophet, and he, and he asks, do you understand what you're reading? So Philip comes up to him, hears him reading out loud, and says, do you understand what you're reading? And he's like, and listen to his response, how can I unless someone guides me? I would love this. Imagine being on the subway or the bus or just sitting there at the thing, and someone's reading from the sermon I'm about to preach. Do you know what you're reading? How can I, unless someone explains to me why Simon the magician didn't have the Holy Spirit, but this guy does. I'm like, I bet I can help. It's like, that's, <laughs> that's the story. <laughs> I bet I can help. Like, if this isn't T-ball, this isn't like he had to, he did not have to have a, a game system. He didn't have to say, I'll give you a free prize. If you come in my chariot, here's a Pokemon. Oh, and here's the Bible. Like, nothing like that. Like, this guy was just already doing it. God brought him to it. Okay. That's exciting. How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. He doesn't know Philip from Adam. He doesn't know Philip from anybody. He's like, I'll let you teach me. Philip's not like, doesn't, is it wearing like a suit? He's not wearing a robe. I mean, maybe he is, but I don't, I'm not like, he's not, he doesn't have authority look in his body. Philip just recognized this guy's there. Now the passage of scripture he was reading was this, and it quotes from Isaiah 53. 
Like a sheep that was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens on his mouth. His humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. This is a passage, if you will, that in Isaiah, we're gonna, it's, it's a part of the servant song in Isaiah. And so we'll look at it in just a minute. But understand, it says, and the eunuch said to Philip, about whom I asked, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Like that's his, his question doesn't say, what does this mean? What's this about? His question is, who's this about? Who is this about? Him or someone else? And it's clearly not about Isaiah. And so listen to this. So then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told them the good news about Jesus. Let me just say something to you. I can't think of a better scripture to begin talking about Jesus when all you have is the Old Testament, the, the Hebrew Bible. There is not a scripture that's better to start with than that one. Where else would you want to start in the Old Testament to talk about Jesus? It is the passage. Jews today that read the Tanakh, they don't like that passage. I remember I used to be a, a, a personal trainer, and I had these Jewish ladies that were my clients, and I, would all, and I, became, I was a Christian and started a church, and they did not want to come to my church or hear what I had to say. And so one day I read them Isaiah 53 while we were doing our training. I didn't, I didn't care. I'm like, hey, what do you think about this? Like, oh, that's, you're, in the, you're reading the, uh, that's the New Testament. I'm like, no, 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 that's, that's from your Bible. What? And I actually brought the JPS translation, which is the Jewish translation of the thing. They're like, what? I'm like, yeah, it's in Isaiah. They're like, what? They're like, that's about Jesus. I'm like, yeah. Well, I was like, go ask your rabbi. And they, they came back. I said, what did he say? They said, they said, don't worry about it, basically. <laughs> like, don't. I'm like, it's like, okay, don't worry about it. They saw it. They're like, that's about Jesus. I'm like, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? But there's more than that. Not only does he happen to be there, does he happen to be going slow in a chair? Does he happen to be open in a 29-foot scroll to the very passage you want to turn to? Not does he happen to be there. As, he, as Philip explains in the gospel, where are they? They're in a desert place, and he puts his faith in Christ somewhere in this conversation, and they happen to pass by water. Guys, listen. There's whole stories in the Old Testament about people having to go through and dig wells because it's a desert place. A desert place means, ah, water. Like, and just cruising along, and you're like, hey, there's some water. What prevents me from being baptized? And it says, and they go down and he gets baptized. Now, some of your Bible, you might notice that it says 37 and then, or, or sorry, it doesn't have verse 37 in your Bible. Oh my gosh, it's missing. Who took it from your Bible? No, but that's because it's a different textual manuscript. Like a later manuscript is probably an addition. And so if you want to learn all about that, you can Google it. It's fascinating. But long story short, Philip then, uh, they go down to the water and he gets baptized. He gets, he's baptizing them. Right? That's the, that's the key story here. So all of this story is a story of God's work, and it is in your face that God did it. Right? It's in your face that God did it. So for example, let me just make sure we don't miss this. Go to Acts chapter 2. I want to make sure that we see all of it. Acts chapter 2, verse 23. This is a theme in the book of Acts. So this is, let's start with this one. What does it say? This Jesus, this is Peter talking. He says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Right? So what, what is Luke making plain here? That Jesus, the plan of the cross, was a plan before the foundation of the earth. Okay, cool. Look at chapter 3, verse 18. You're doing good. What else do we see? He goes, what, the, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, the cross was not an accident. It happened exactly as God planned it. In chapter 4, verse 27, when the, when the early church was being persecuted, they prayed, to Jesus, they prayed and they said, 
For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, Luke makes it very plain that God ordained the cross of your salvation. Is that fair? Can we all see that? But that's not the only thing that Luke emphasizes. If you go back to chapter 2 for a minute, look at verse 39. He also emphasizes something else. In verse 39, it says, talking about the Holy Spirit and salvation, is for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Oh. Well, doesn't God call everyone? No, because he went to a desert road over here to talk to one guy, and he left another guy that, that wanted to buy. He didn't say they were trying to convince Simon. And with many other words, he bore witness, continue to exhort them, saying, save yourselves with crooked generation. So those who received his word and were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Added that day about 3,000. God's work is the work not only to ordain the cross of your salvation, but the circumstances of it. Just so we don't miss that, look at verse 47 of the same chapter. They says this, this is praising God and having favor with all the people. Just so we don't miss it, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Who did that? The Lord did it. The Lord did it. And then some of you might say, well, why doesn't he add everyone? And the very question presupposes that he ought to. If he ought to add everyone, then that's not grace. That's merit. Everyone deserves it. If you're asking the question, why shouldn't he save everyone? Again, just, just don't miss this again. I want to say it again and again. If I went to a prison, I say, I'm going to take one prisoner and let him go. That's pretty cool, right? Like, that's crazy. But if someone says, why don't you let all the prisoners go? No one says that, right? No one ever says, why don't you let all the prisoners go? When, when a president pardons a prisoner, no one says, why don't you pardon everybody, right? The reason why is because everyone knows the prisoners are guilty and belong there. That's why no one asks that. But when we ask about God choosing to save some and not others, we say, why doesn't he save everyone? Because we, and we smuggle in that he ought to. And the Bible goes out of the way to say that he shouldn't. The surprise that he saves anyone. That's the picture. If we don't get it, we're not going to see what's happening here. God chose to save some. Look at chapter 13, verse 48. If this scandalizes you, whatever, it's what it says. Grow up. Look at what it says. I'm not trying to be mean. I'm just like, just, you don't get to make it up is all my point is. You can say, I don't like it, but you can't deny it says it, right? Acts 13, verse 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. It, 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 well, someone snuggled in these Calvinist verses in my Bible. What's going on here? I didn't notice this. <laughs> Look at chapter 15. Luke is just, I didn't know Luke was, I, think, I thought John Calvin came after Luke. What's happening here? Luke chapter 15, verse 8. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. This is Peter talking. He says, and he made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. Wait, wait. Having cleansed their hearts by faith. In other words, faith is pictured as something that God gives to them to cleanse their hearts. Ooh, that's kind of fascinating. Look at chapter 16, verse 14. They're, spe they're preaching. It says, One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Is it because she was so attentive herself? No, God had to make her pay attention. In other words, God like took Lydia's heart and was like, look at this, <laughs> right? That's pretty big. Look at chapter 18, verse 27. I could go on, but I'll just do this last one. So Apollos here, he says he wished to cross to Acacia and the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace 
had believed. Look at that phrase, who through grace. Not, who, it doesn't say who had believed in grace. It says who through grace. What is grace again? Grace is the free, unearned gift of God. And it was through that free, unearned gift of God that they believed. Grace is a, the belief in this case would be a gift of grace. Why do I say all this? Why do I say all this? Well, it, you know, the force of his grace, if you look at Ephesians, and we'll look at it, for, I'm going to jump out of order for a second, but go to Ephesians 1. I talked about this last week. This is about you. you know, this isn't just Luke's emphasis. It's like this is a, not a hidden part in the Bible. In other words, this is meant to encourage you. What does Paul say to Ephesians? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself. So he predestined, he chose before the foundation of the world, predestined as, uh, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So Again, if God looks down the quarters of time, what does he see? He sees your sin. He chose according to his will what he wanted. And he did that for the praise of his glorious grace. Remember what 1 Corinthians says, so we boast in him alone, with which he's blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And that's the story. That's the story of Psalm 139. He lavished his grace upon us, his love he set upon us. He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the, the mystery, the secret of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan uh, for the fullness of time. This is the decree. Before he said, let there be light to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we've obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, think of the eunuch, think of you. Can you see the force of his grace blowing upon your own life? When you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who's the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In other words, at some point in time, God ordained that someone would share the gospel for you or to you and with you and people would pray for you and they would intercede for you and they would talk to you and maybe you went low and maybe you were hurting and maybe you missed that red light or whatever the case may be, but you were there to hear the gospel. And when that happened, he had planned it all along, just like the eunuch. Happens to be reading the scroll, happens to have water, happens to be right there. Now, what was he happening to be reading? Go to Isaiah 53. This is the servant song of Isaiah. Of all the places, just, I'm pointing this out to you to emphasize the coincidence of it all. Of all the places. Now look at your Old Testament. You go to, keep your finger there, but like just open up, go to, find Matthew. Now this isn't a scroll, but this is like the end of Malachi. Everyone, everyone humor me for a moment, please. Humor me. All right. And in fact, I'm going to turn to it again. Just, just take your Bible and do this. That's how many pages. Now, that's how many pages. And you say, I'm going to just open up randomly to one page. Let's see what I learned about salvation. We cry to the Lord. That's not a good one. 
Uh, let's go somewhere else. Like, it doesn't work that way. This guy happens to be right there on a 29-foot scroll to Isaiah 53. In this case, he would have started. There's no numbering. So he'd just be in a random place. And it probably was the beginning of the servant song is Isaiah 50, 52, verse 13. And notice what he was reading. This is what he was reading as he's in a chariot and all of a sudden pops up someone next to him. It says this, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted, which is a, a, a description all the way back of the, the picture in the chamber, high and lifted up, but also really the picture of the cross of Jesus. It says, as many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. This guy would have just come from Jerusalem. He's coming back from Jerusalem. He had bought himself a scroll. He probably heard all about the, the rumblings of this guy that was crucified. And then it goes on and says, who has believed what he's heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. And all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned every one to his way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before it shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. And all of a sudden, boom, something pops up. Do you understand what you're reading? Who's this talking about? And beginning with Jesus, he says, let me tell you who like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and for his generation who considered he was cut off out of the land of living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he'd done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. And here's the guy listening to this. And he goes, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And he's like, wait, what? It was the will of the Lord to crush him? He goes, yes. And he could have gone through the entire sacrificial system all the way up to this moment leading up to this. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he's poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. And so they talk longer and he's like, I gotta, I gotta put my faith in this guy. And he goes, all right. And he goes, well, I believe, I believe. He goes, well, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And we're going to see that after he's baptized, Philip is peace out. He's gone like that. Now, if you're, if you're this guy, this eunuch, what do you think he did in the rest of the chariot? Do you think he just like threw the scroll away or do you think he kept reading? I bet that's pretty remarkable. He probably kept reading. Go on. Go to chapter 56 for a minute. Like five minutes after coming out of that water and picking his scroll back up, he would have come to this. 56 verse 3, let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, wait, wait what? He's like, Did it just, is it talking about me? Let not the eunuch say, I'm a, behold, I'm a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths. This guy just was doing that. He went to Jerusalem. To, to worship the Lord, to follow the Jewish holiday, and all of a sudden he finds the Lord, the Sabbath himself. 
who chose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I'll give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than the sons and daughters. I'll give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. And he goes on and describes this. Verse 8, the Lord God who gathers outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others to him besides those already gathered. And as soon as he reads that, he's going to realize why Philip had left. Because the force of grace blowing on his life was still blowing. Was still blowing. That's the whole scene that we look at. Go back to our passage now. Verse 39. When they came out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. Again, it's not a picture of, but just however it works, just he's gone. And that the whole picture is the story that Jesus tells Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes. You don't know where it's come from or where it's going. That's a picture of grace on this man dramatically drawn for us. The Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. Why? Because he knew that God's work of grace is still going. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. He preached the gospel all the towns until he came to Caesarea. In other words, this isn't like the normal experience for Philip, where he just goes where the Holy Spirit tells him. He went back, and he ends up at Caesarea when we find him later, preaching the gospel. I bring all this up to you to remind you that this picture of the Holy Spirit still blowing, I think, is important. Go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Look at the experience of the eunuch, and then I want you to look at it as its transitions. What is he, after talking about God's work to us, he says, Paul says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, find the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Just like the eunuch, just like you, just like I, we were far from God. We didn't seek him out. This is the force of grace in all of it. It says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses. Do you guys understand what that means? Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, this is the picture of us in active rebellion. In, in the act of murder, in the act of sin, in the act of rebelling and blaspheming, it's in the act of that that it says that he loved us so much with his great mercy that he sent his son. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, it's at that moment he made us alive. It's not like we were like dead in our trespasses, like, I want to come alive. Dead men don't ask for CPR. It was when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, period. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this, what is the this referring to? The sentence we just read. You, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God the entire experience. It is not a result of works so that no one may boast. Let me ask you a question, Christian. Can you see the force of his grace blowing upon your life truly? It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, for which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I would argue that if you cannot see the force of grace, his grace upon your life, you will not see it upon the lives of others. 
because it says here that we, were, we are his workmanship, his poema, and we were created, this grace was given to us to create us in Christ Jesus for a purpose, for good works. That's what Philip did. Prepare for good works that, and here it is, ready? Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in. He prepared our salvation beforehand. He also prepared our walking in, in that salvation to lead others, to, to do good works. All of it's prepared beforehand. In other words, Christian, right now, your steps, in the same way Philip said, go to this place. God might not say that, but he's providentially ordered your steps. It, we read that in Psalm 139. He's providentially ordered your steps to do his ministry. Another way to say this is this, like, look, don't, and, and, and I'm not gonna turn to 2 Corinthians right now, but I just want, we, we cannot receive this grace in vain. If you cannot see the force of grace in your life, how will you trust the force of his grace in the lives of others? And we're going to get all like gimmicky and weird, right? How will you trust that if you don't believe what he's done in you? If you don't see the impossibility of what he's done in you, you're not going to believe the impossible chance that that weird person that you've always talked to that never listens to you might listen. Saul ravaging the church gets saved and writes most of the New Testament. Like your crazy grandma or your aunt or the person that's mean to you, at your coworker at work, at the Gaza Strip right now, People fighting each other, terrorists blowing people up, other people trying to defend their own country. It was at that moment that you want to know where, where peace and all that comes from Jesus Christ, and one day he'll go back and there'll be peace right there. This is it. This is the only force of grace that does any of those things. And here's the point. We have to recognize this, that through your endurance, through your afflictions, through your hardship, the force of his grace is still blowing on the lives of others. And you won't believe that unless you recognize and see it in your own life. Let's take a quick look at a video. Right. Father, as we think through the Sheer force of your grace that's blown upon us. I can't believe what you've done to save me. And everyone in here, I just ask from the dramatic to the boring testimonies that they would recognize the significance of your work before the foundation of the earth to save them. That your story of grace upon their lives was set before they were born. I pray we would recognize your hand. We would recognize that whoever wants to be saved, the door is truly open. And when we get through that door, we would look back and realize we were chosen and ordained before the foundation of the earth. I pray, Father, for those today that know these things to be true, that you would give us confidence as we go forward, knowing that our steps are ordained and that we are, your, we are part of your wind blowing throughout, working and bringing your grace into the cracks of a dying world. I pray, Father, for those that don't know you today, that you would recognize and that they would understand, actually, and better that, that they would understand what you've done to bring them here today, all the coincidences and the circumstances that brought them to a place to hear that there is a God who exists, who loves bigger than they could ever imagine, that they can recognize that their sin and recognize that they can never be righteous in their own. They can recognize the gift that you've wrought for them, that your spirit would enliven them and enlighten them, and they would reach out with a newfound regenerate faith and be saved this very day. They would sign up for baptism so we can celebrate it. I pray, Father, that this sermon goes beyond uh, what we can see today and does, does your work. In Jesus' name, amen.